Thank you, Natalie. So grab your Bibles, get your Bibles ready. While you're pulling those out, I'd like to invite my friend Herbert Barbuti up. Now, COVID's ruined a lot of things, uh, but there are silver linings. And one of those silver linings is that Herb and his family, over in that corner, I'm sure they don't want to know where, they don't want anywhere to know where they are, but there they are, Lorelai and Raynan and Zadok and Samuel. Um, if COVID hadn't grounded them in America, they'd be who knows where across the globe. Tokyo, we know where. But you're, yeah, you're international almost all the time. And it's a great privilege, privilege to have you here. So I met Herb when I was... 16 for the first time. Technically, we went to the same school, but same I never elementary knew school. In something like 2004? Yeah, or five. 2005, Herb dropped out of school like any good Christian does. <laughs> <laughs> and he sold his stuff. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and he moved to Mozambique, and he ended up working with a ministry called Iris Ministries in Mozambique, Pemba mostly, and was the director of outreach for that organization for a long time. And he'll probably tell you some stuff about them. I encourage you to look it up on your own. Really cool work. He took the Iris DNA and he brought it to Fortaleza, Brazil, after he and Lorelai got married. And they planted a missions base in Fortaleza, Brazil, serving specifically those in the slums um, and those caught in the cycle of prostitution. Um, they also, as a missions base, were a training center for other missionaries to come. That base is still kicking, still going. But you abandoned it now, what, five years ago? Yeah. Yeah. Four years ago. Four yeah. years ago because you, he had this call to Tokyo. And so he and his wife have been serving now at the IRIS headquarters in California for the last four-ish years, preparing for this move to Tokyo. And we are the lucky ones who get to hear him before he leaves because of, praise the Lord, the coronavirus. <laughs> Come on. Come on. <laughs> so everybody, welcome Herbert Barbuti. Uh, and listen... Thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks, man. Well, good morning. Oh, I'm so excited. Like Jed said, this is a surprise. And actually a historic day for me. I grew up in the same town. I don't know if you guys have heard much about Holland, Michigan. I know Pastor Eric served there uh, at a church there. I've actually been to the church. I don't know if we actually crossed paths during that time. Um, but this is my first time speaking at a Reformed church. I know you guys are like in between, but it'll still count it for me, okay? Um, and Holland, Michigan's kind of like Dutch Reformed headquarters, right? Um, so I wasn't so popular there back in that day. Dropping out didn't, somebody was excited, but almost everybody else reacted like this side of the room. And so I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about me uh, so you have some context. But I really want to get into this thing of persecution. When Jed uh, asked me to speak, he gave me two options. And he went, you, you know, I've got these two signs, leadership or persecution. And I, I think most of my minister friends would have been like leadership. You know, I, I, I'm a little different. So I was like, oh, persecution is my favorite. How many of you guys are so excited about this talk today? Come on, some of you are reading Acts. Okay, that's good. Listen, uh, I'm really excited. And I want us to be expectant about what God's going to do this morning, okay? Because actually, this is something that I've been preaching about for the last four years. When I've been here in the States, this has been my go-to message across the U.S. because I think it's something very important and it's something I've seen just shift people's lives is if we can get this, is just the blessing of being persecuted and some things that are going to come with that, okay? But first, before we do that, I was going to just... Introduced Jed, I kind of already did my family over there. I have a beautiful wife and three boys. You want to wave, Lorelai? 
And actually, we have a team member, Aaron, who's a good friend, also moving with us in, to Tokyo with his family. And we're all kind of just waiting for the borders to open up. Um, but I want to start out in prayer again. Is that okay? All right, so let's just pray. I want all of us, I'm going to pray, but I want us all to just engage and invite the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and speak. Is that okay? Let's do it. Jesus, we are just so grateful for this time together. That we get to be here, that we get to be in your house. And we just ask that you would just really move in us. Holy Spirit, would you just come? We just thank you for even those words we sung this morning. We're just not in a hurry when it comes to you. We want to hear you. We've come here to meet with you, God. And we ask that you would just meet with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, there was a gentleman who was playing the saxophone. Is he here? Josh? All the way in the back? Hey, I, I just felt something for you real quick. I hope, is that okay? Uh, what, your name is Josh? When you were playing, I just felt like God is just calling you into um, his secret place even more. I feel like you're, you're going there, but I also saw just some hope deferred in the past. And I just feel like God's actually going to be restoring some things. I feel like the timing wasn't right on some of those things that were really difficult. Uh, but I feel like God's calling you in to give you even a new hope, hope that you're not expecting. Okay? Um, but it was really, I mean, and it was anointed. His saxophone was amazing. Um, so, I want to give you guys, let's, before I even give you some context, let's start out with Acts 14, shall we? And I, I love Acts. This is actually, I mean, they all changed my life, the Gospels, but Acts is kind of the model for us, right? As the New Testament church, this is kind of where we get to see Jesus is, is resurrected at this point. How do we function as a church, right? And Acts kind of lays out this amazing premise and just um, this history. And so as we go through this, I know it's 14, through, 8 through 20. Um, I'm just going to summarize some of this and we're going to go into um, 19 a little bit more in Lystra, okay? Um, but Paul and Barnabas are traveling, they're encouraging the church, they're building the church, and guess what happens? They get persecuted. Okay? So they get stoned. This is, this is not one place. So what we see actually a little earlier in the beginning of, of 14, right? In Iconium, they're actually what? They're stoned. Right? And so they mistreated them, and they stoned them, it says in verse 5. So they learned of it, they fled. Right? Um, they were actually planning to stone them. And so they did this, they fled to the next place. And they're preaching the gospel, and they do this amazing sign, right? And guess what happens? Someone gets healed. This is very common for Acts. You guys have noticed this now, right? Signs, wonders, power. The, Paul is just preaching. He's doing these signs and wonders that Jesus did. And so someone gets healed, and what is the response? It's positive, right? They, they think, oh, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Right? That's verse 11. They treat them like gods. How many of you guys have been treated like a god before? No? Oh, oh, one. There you go. Oh, by her. <laughs> there you go. Listen, for some of us believers, we're like, this is good. 
If we're honest, if people were to just go, oh, wow, you're like God's. That's, that's what we're looking for. That's the response we expect when we see a sign of wonder. <gasps> Except their hearts weren't in it. Right? We expect that when we are preaching the gospel and we're doing the stuff and people are getting healed and they're getting saved and they're getting delivered or whatever's happening and their lives are being transformed, that people are going to look at us and go, oh, that's awesome. Look at that guy. There's something on them, Right? Better yet, they think, oh, you're anointed of God. In this case, they thought they were actual gods. And Paul and Barnabas are distraught by this. Right? But you would think this is a good start. Except what happens? Right? Jews come in, and pretty soon, these people are now stoning them. Are you guys seeing kind of a pattern in this chapter? So they stoned them, right? So we're going to read here in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derb. When they had preached the gospel of that city and they had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So he goes back to these places, and he says, you know what? Take heart. Through these tribulations, we'll enter the kingdom of God, right? So I'm going to read that last part again. Encouraging them to continue the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. How many of you are American? Most of you? Most. I, I'm an American citizen, but I'm also a Brazilian and an Italian. I'm a tri-citizen. Okay? But I grew up most of my school years in uh, Hall, Michigan. So I consider myself to know the American culture pretty well. And uh, I'm pretty American sometimes. The Brazilians thought I was pretty American. The Americans think I'm pretty Brazilian. So, listen, as Americans, persecution isn't always the thing that comes to mind when we're talking about Christianity. Right? Now, there's, there's some displeasure. There's some discomfort. So, there's a lot of people right now that don't like Christians in America. Is that fair to say? You guys feel that sometimes? Yeah? Listen, it's true. There's a lot of discomfort. But here's the thing about persecution. Yes, it's a form of persecution, but what Paul is dealing with is life-threatening. Right? Has anyone here ever had their life threatened for being a Christian? This is abnormal. I want you to understand something. In the world, the fact that, that no one here is raising their hand, this is abnormal. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean it's your fault. I just want you to realize that it's abnormal. Most people, for the faith, they have to physically suffer. Right? You guys have read the accounts in China? Yeah? Largest growing church in the world. And persecution. This is part of it. I, I face persecution. Listen. This is the thing. 
Paul says this. This is so clear in Acts. He says, To continue in the faith and saying, uh, saying that, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Here's the problem. If you believe that tribulation only comes from the devil, then how are you going to enter the kingdom like that? Most of us signed up for Christianity in a different way than Jesus proclaimed it. I'll say that. The way I was taught about Christianity is, come, Jesus is just going to, he's going to bless you. He'll forgive you, and he will just bless you. And he has taken up the cross, so you do not have to. That is all true. Just not the whole thing. So, let's go back a little bit. I grew up in Michigan, like I said, Reformed uh, Center, right? Uh, almost everybody was Dutch and Christian. So I fit in really well with my dark hair. Okay? It was just, that was just part of the heritage. I don't even remember fully. My parents just felt that's where we were supposed to be. I didn't know a lick of English. I was put in, I, I was from Brazil, so we speak Portuguese, but I was put in with the Spanish speakers, right? So, they're like, you're Mexican. Go over there. Okay. And so, that's where I grew up. And the thing is, everybody was Christian. Everyone just assumed they were. Now, there was parties and drugs and everything else in high school and middle school. It was all happening except everyone, if you were to ask anybody if they were a Christian, they would always go, yes, absolutely, of course. Why would you ask me that? That's where I grew up, okay? And the thing is, that this gospel I'm telling you, it was just, hey, God's going to bless you. He wants to bless you. He wants you to be so successful and to make awesome amounts of money. So you could bless missionaries. So you could do things for the kingdom, of course. And have a nice car, you know? On the side. That's not the purpose. It's just a benefit. Okay? That was Michigan. That was my constant ringing in my ears. So I honestly was trying to pursue God at 15. I was trying my best. And I was going to church every Sunday. I was leading the middle school uh, Bible study. And at, you know, at lunch, there were like 50 people coming, and it was growing. It was great. And I remember hearing from one of my friend's moms, came to pick him up at school, and, and something had happened. He, had, he got into trouble, and he goes, I, and she was, I was right there, and she said, I just wish you'd be a good Christian like Herbert. That's when I thought I made it, you know, like, <laughs> that's good. Um, and here's the thing. I, I had these checklists. Does anybody ever do like goals and like checklists? I, at 15, I had, I, I don't have this anymore. I kind of wish I did. But at 15, I, I had this checklist. I had a six month. It was for the semester. And I had my five year and my 10 year. Those are like my goals, right? These big goals. And it's like dream big. And it was just silly things. But to a 15 year old, it mattered a whole lot. Right? And it was, I wanted to get, you know, 4.0. I wanted to... Be, have the highest honor, you know, the state honor at uh, my sport. And I wanted a certain girl to like me, and I wanted to be popular. I don't remember the other ones. Does that sound silly to some of you? No? Oh, okay, good. Listen, this crazy thing happened. It, within two weeks, ten days, 
All, I just ended up checking all those things. All of a sudden, you know, I got the highest honor in my sport that made me very popular. That made the girl like me. And it was just, oh, you'd think I would be just on cloud nine, right? Except I wasn't. There's nothing fulfilling about it. I was actually at rock bottom. I realized this doesn't bring any joy. Not real joy. It was nice for a moment, and it actually doesn't fulfill me at all. And so I decided, okay, what am I going to live for now for the next month? I had a month left in the semester, and I thought, I didn't plan this well. So I went to my five-year goals, right? And my tenure, and I thought, and I looked, and it was the American dream. I, I knew how much I wanted to make out of college. I knew how much, you know, what car I wanted. I wanted a nice, submissive wife, right? Which I still have. She's more fiery than I thought, but she <laughs> loves the Lord. And I wanted a dog. Yeah? Sound nice? And then I thought to myself, what happens if somehow God blesses me enough that I actually get all this in 10 years? Right? Let's say I'm 36, and I have all that. I have the job, I have the money, I have the car, I have the house, starting a family, and then what? You ever thought about that? And then what? It just didn't fulfill me, and it put me in a spiral where I, I honestly started questioning, why, why am I living the way I'm living? I think this is a good question for some of us. What are you living for? What's the point of your life? This is essential to what we're talking about. What is the point? What is, why did God place you here? And I would lay in my bed awake at night. I would go to bed and I'd try not to think about it. And at night, it would all come rushing back. And for hours, I would just cry and I would pray the one thing I knew to pray. God, if you're real, if I believed he was, there's got to be something more to life. And I would pray that over and over and over again every night for weeks. Because life just didn't make sense. So, a few weeks later, I go to youth group and there's a missionary coming in. His name was Captain Bob. Anyone heard of Captain Bob? You would, yeah. Oh, somebody has? Wow. He, he was this missionary. He was this little old man Super strong, strong as an ox, right? He's about this high, big nose. He was a fisherman. And he was a missionary in Paraguay. So he started his sermon. I sat in the very back, and he started his sermon, and he just goes on about fishing. His sermon was about what it was like to be a fisherman. You know, he thought that would appeal to a youth group. And so he went on about that because Peter was a fisherman, and so he just kept going. And I remember sitting in the back, and I was just judging him, if I'm honest, right? No one has done this, probably. But I, I was just thinking, he's terrible. I, I was 15. I'd never preached at this point. I thought, I could probably do a better job. And on he went about the type of fish, and you need to use this kind of net, and it's hard work, and people were just getting yelled at by this old fisherman, right? And then all of a sudden, he just looks around and goes, God's here. Spirit's here. All right, we're ready. It was like 25 minutes in. And he starts telling these stories about Paraguay, about these little girls, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, that got touched, and they started going out into the streets and just praying for people. 
And people started getting healed, and they started getting saved. And there was one little girl who was in her classroom, and so she started pray, praying for someone. The teacher told her to stop, so she prayed louder. <laughs> and her teacher went out in the spirit, and pretty soon the whole classroom was out. So she went to the next classroom, and she goes, Jesus loves you. And, and the teacher said, be quiet, and poof, the whole classroom goes out. This is in Paraguay. And they called the parents. 30 minutes later, they said, we gotta, you got to pick up your kids because they're all on the floor. They're all encountering Jesus right now. This is not a Christian school. You see, I don't know what it is. See, sometimes we're going about God with logic. Right? I'm, I, at this point in my life, when I'm hearing this, I, I'm trying to figure out what is life about. Remember that question that keeps going through? And I hear this story about these little girls in Paraguay, and something in me just goes, that's it. That's it. Mind you, I hadn't read Acts yet. Leading the Bible study, just didn't, like a good, reformed guy, didn't read my Bible, okay? It was just a confession, okay? I just didn't read it. So when I heard this, this was new to me, and I thought, I need that. There's something there that these girls have that I don't have. God is more real to them than he is to me. So I ran up there, prayed for me, and I felt for the first time in my life, I felt the presence of God at that point. Like liquid fire. I could actually feel him. And I made a decision at that day. I said, God, this love is better than life. Honestly, that feeling of actually God being close, that he actually wants to commune with you, is better than life itself. And I remember saying at that moment, I said, God, my whole life is lost at this point. There's only one thing I want to live for. That is for you, and to feel this every day. Some of you guys, you think teenagers are just emotional and rebellious, and could be. But sometimes we discount our decisions that we made when we were young. Those kind of vows we made to God. I, I've never looked back from that one. That's right. I, I, I came back to my parents. I said, I'm dropping out of high school. And I'm moving to Paraguay. Yeah? How many of you guys want your children to say that to you? Listen. I was in. I, my whole life had been to go to Ivy League or do something. I was very driven. But you know what? It didn't matter. It didn't matter anymore, not compared to this overwhelming love that God had. And here's the thing. This is the basis for how we do persecution well. It is that decision that we lose our lives on the front end. This is the part some of us have not gotten to. Let's turn to Luke 14. Because, you know, when I did this, I, you know, uh, Bob left. And so I was left there. My parents said I could go to Paraguay when I was 17. I had a whole year. Right? So I did the next best thing I could think of. I turned on Christian radio in Hall, Michigan. It was like Sandy Patty, Michael W. Smith. You know, just the good stuff. And, and I opened my Bible. And I started reading. Changed my life. Started in the Gospels because I knew you were supposed to start there. And always heard that from new converts, right? 
And as I started to read, my perceptions of who Jesus were were shattered. We all kind of come into it with different ideas about Jesus. I had this picture of like hippie Jesus, right? Who, who just, lo- he was just smiling all the time. He just, love you, be healed, love you, man. And it was just love all around, right? Now this is true. Actually, God is love. Jesus, in everything he did, he was perfect in his love. Did you know that? Everything, when, he's, when he is actually, he, he's, he's yelling at a Pharisee, you know what he's operating out of? Love. The amazing thing about Jesus is that in everything he did, he was doing it fully in love. He never sinned, not once. Do you understand how amazing that is? And this blew me, this is the lens I'm reading with, and Jesus is doing some things that I, I just don't think are very nice. Is anyone, no one's come to that point yet? You read the gospel and you go, you really shouldn't call that Canaanite woman a dog. Yeah? You guys know the story? Right? And she's prostrated. She's, she's humbling herself. He's just like, nope. Just doesn't seem very nice. Right? How about when he tells people that come and they walk around this lake and they're trying to find him and they come out and he goes, well, you don't really want what I have. No, we came all this way. No, you want bread. I'll give you bread. You got to eat my flesh. You got to drink my blood. That was nice. That was loving, right? See, I always thought God was just trying to get people to come to him, as many as possible. No, that's what we as humans do. We think success is in the number, and we just want, no, 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 it's okay. We'll, we'll lower some standards, but just come. We'll tell you the hard stuff later. Just come in the door. Is that how Jesus called his disciples? Let's look at it. Luke 14. Verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Everyone here has read that, right? It's in a few of the Gospels. You guys, you guys know this, right? This is Christianity 101. How many of you are disciples of Jesus here? Good. I always thought it was open enrollment. I always just thought it was the sign-up sheet. Jesus is like, yes, come, please, anybody here. Except that's actually not how it is. You know, Jesus turns people away. He doesn't just turn away. He goes, you're not worthy to be my disciple. You know that? that how many of you guys would feel comfortable saying that? No? And this is why, this is part of why we have such a problem with persecution. This is the starting line for the apostles. This is a starting line for the church of Acts. They understand this. This is how Peter is called in. This is how James is called in. This is, this is what Jesus says. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You guys know that? There's, there's a lot of, this is in, true in America and in Brazil. They have these kind of expressions. This is my cross. 
right? You guys ever heard that? It's used like it's different for everybody. The cross is just this different load for everybody, you know, like my, my mother-in-law. She wants to move in. I guess this is my cross. Right? Or my wife, she really likes expensive jewelry, and so it's my cross. My cross to bear. Pray for me, brother. You guys heard stuff like this? That's how we use it. We think the cross is just this metaphoric thing. So let's do some Bible study. Just on this, I know this is simple stuff. This is just Christianity 101. But let's do a little study on it. In that culture, right? We've got to look at that culture. What do people mean? What, when Jesus is communicating to these people, what are they understanding? Because back then, you would not wear a cross on your shirt or on your earrings. It wasn't this awesome symbol. It's been redeemed to us. But at that time, that wasn't what it was. Everyone in that culture knew what a cross was. It was an instrument of torture and death. You did not use it for anything else. So when he's saying, I'm gonna, I need you to bear your cross, he's literally saying, this is going on to death. This will cost you your life. It wasn't like, it wasn't the specific problems you have in your life. Those will come. He's talking about the cross. I think it was A.W. Tozer said, you know, if you saw someone walking out of town with a cross, you knew one thing. They weren't coming back. You understand, the cross was only used for that person. When Jesus communicated to his disciples, and he said, you got to follow me, this ends with one thing. It only ends one way. Death. It was not easy to follow Jesus. He did not say, this is going to be awesome. You should come. This is gonna, you're going you're gonna to want to see this. You see, what you're seeing in Acts, what you're seeing when, when Paul and Barnabas are being mistreated and they're being stoned, and then they, they have the audacity to come back and just keep going like, like they expected it. Almost like they thought it might happen. What? Isn't that weird? See, Jesus actually promises it. Now, Jesus has a lot of really awesome promises that I love and I go over. One of them that people don't always love very much is he promises that you will be hated. He says, no disciples greater than his master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you too. But we, some of us think we're better than Jesus. I talk to young people all the time. New missionaries come in, they go, I figured it out. There's a way to be loved by the world. They won't say in those exact words, but they want it. They want the love of the world, and they want to be doing God's work. Right? And missionaries, how could you possibly be mad at missionaries? You know what we used to do? We used to feed poor people in the slums. We used to pray for them to get healed. How, what, why would you persecute that? That's not the part that got... Feeding people was never the part that Jesus, that Jesus was persecuted over. It was the gospel. Some of us are not living in such a way that it actually shows people the gospel. See, the gospel is really convicting. The, the, the idea that, that God actually died for you, and he requires you to follow him in this way, by giving up your own life, it's convicting. 
confrontational. And it hasn't changed over 2,000 years. I don't believe that the cost of discipleship has magically changed somehow. And in Acts, they were ready. Stephen had already been martyred. Right? This has got to somehow apply to us. Acts is not some far-off time. It was 2,000 years ago. The cultures were different. But this is a model. This is the one model we have of the New Testament church is this and the epistles of what it looks like to be a body of Christ. There's a model here. This is how we've established churches. It's based on these models. And persecution is always there. You're going to look through all of Acts. I, when I talked to you, I said, you want me to hit it from here? You want me to start at the beginning? Because it's all there. It starts with persecution. It's the backbone. It's there all the time. You're not part of the world. So it doesn't love you as its own, unless you look a lot like it. And that's where we fall in sometimes. We look just like the world, except when we come here. On Sunday, they're sleeping in. We're, we're here, so that we must be different. Listen, the world needs to see what God's given you all the time. And it's meant to confront their ways. You know, I see, I see Christians here, they're confronting, they're, they're not afraid to confront when it comes to face masks or politics. They're ready. Let's go. Let's hash this out right now with a complete stranger. <laughs> if only people would have that kind of zeal for the gospel. And I mean that. Where's the passion? Where's, where's our lifestyle that confronts the world? Where's our love? When they hate us, we get this opportunity to do the supernatural thing. Love them. Right? Jesus goes, hating those that hate you and loving those that love you, that's just what the world does. There's nothing different about that. But when you get to live in such a way that confronts them and then they hate you, you get this opportunity to love. You know something that astounded me about my, my study of the early church? And it took me years, honestly years, to even wrap my mind around it, is if I was in the early church and the great persecution came and they were feeding Christians to lions and they were just mass executions and that was the early church, I would have been, and this is the American side of me, I would have gone, I, I'm going to take what I have and I'm going to go over there and make sure that Christianity survives for the next 20 generations. Right? I wouldn't go, yep, I'm a Christian. I'll be next. And yet, my historical records show that was the majority of the church going, yep, go ahead, take me. Kids, women, fed to lions, singing hymns. This is not one time, this is not just a few times. This was a habit of the church. You guys know this, though, I'm sure. Why did they do it? Why would you willingly end your own life like that? And then have joy about it. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. Paul says this. He says, If we have hope for Christ in this life only, we're to be pitied above all men. He's talking about the resurrection. Jesus, he endured the cross 
Why? For the joy set before him. It was for us. But he saw the joy in it, and it didn't come from this moment. I think people think that when you're being persecuted, when you're suffering in the body, that it's just magically joyful. I know people that have been martyred. I, I know people that have suffered in the body. Listen, it's not always what I hear, is that it's joyful in the moment, but there is a deep joy that's not like the joy of the world that we have to be able to tap into. And it comes from understanding what comes in the future. Can I have the worship team come up, please? When I was 19, I was asked to go into, I wasn't asked, I volunteered, I wanted to go into the Congo. Okay? At that time, it was considered the second most dangerous place in the world. They were pushing the rebels back through the border. It was the largest peacekeeping force the UN had anywhere in the world. And there were no missionaries. They all had, almost all of them had left. So I thought that was a good chance for us to go in. And I remember getting back and just miracle after miracle, they wanted to get us and kill us some of the rebels, and miraculously God spared us time and again at every turn. So when I got back, I remember having a phone call with another missionary friend, and he said, man, you had so much faith. You were just happy to be persecuted and die. And... But you really knew that God was going to save you. And I remember thinking, wait, wait, so you think I had faith. Great faith for God delivering me? He said, yeah, I thought, you, I thought for sure you would die. I had a lot of people tell me that. And I, I remember telling him, you know, I feel like I had great faith. But I, I never had faith in that. God's very willing and capable to deliver me. But that's not what he told me. He didn't say he was going to deliver me. I had great faith that when I die, I know who will receive me. This is, you, I want you guys to be looking at Acts. I want you to be looking at these heroes of faith through this lens. They already counted their lives as lost at the beginning. This was always the cost. Jesus, Jesus in, in Luke 14 goes on to say, you know, you've got to count the cost first. Don't start building this tower or try to go to war without counting the cost. Can you really finish it? Can you really win that battle? And guess what? They saw their Savior, their Master, go up and, and be crucified. Now, most of them weren't there, but they understood. They knew. They were there. They, they understood what his message would mean for them. Persecution was just part of it. And it's actually a privilege. I, I feel privileged. I've come to a point now I can authentically say, when people come to persecute, I feel privilege. It, it makes me excited. As to some of you guys, you think I should get to like a mental hospital. It just makes me excited. Because I'm not, my life at the end of this, here's a spoiler alert, we're all going to die. Or Jesus will return. And the life, this life as you know it, will end. Christian or not, it's going to end. But for Christians, we're not living for this life. This is already lost. This is, this is done. 
God doesn't owe us anything. Did you know that? In this life, I know people that have suffered greatly. Africans that you would say are this incredibly poor. Americans come and look and say and cry how poor these Africans are. And yet, more joyful than anyone I know. Suffering, beaten, and full of Jesus. I want to see that in the U.S. I want to see that in Colorado Springs. I want to see, I want to see the same zeal. Like I said, when you talk about with someone, don't be afraid of what they think of you or what they're going to do to you. And this is the main thing I see. This was true of myself. Missionaries coming in. This fear of death, this fear of man holds us back from doing what God's asked us to do. Some of us want to live like Paul and Barnabas and Acts, but we're not willing to get stoned. Let's stand up. We're going to pray. And I just want, as the worship team is just going for just a little bit, um, I want to pray over you guys. Um, and you're going to have some things. You're going to have some announcements. Did you not? Did you not? No. Nope. Okay. I released them. Go. Yeah. Um, you're released to go if you feel to go. I just want you to take a few minutes, and we're going to pray. And I want to ask that today, if you feel like there is fear in your heart, there's nothing to be ashamed of in that. But come get it out. Come up here. We want to pray. Pastor Eric will be here. I'll be here. We want to pray for you and partner with you. If you have a fear and you feel like you've been holding on to stuff, you haven't been able to say to people what you really feel. You haven't been able to really share the gospel because you're afraid of what people might think. Come up here. Paul... Paul and Barnabas didn't do it on human means. They did it through the Spirit of God. Peter went up there. The guy who was scared of the slave girl and through the Spirit was able to preach to thousands knowing persecution would come. It's through the Spirit that we're able to get these things, but it takes us laying our own lives down at Jesus' feet. So I want to pray. After that, you are all released. And those of you that want more prayer, I want to invite you to come up, okay? Holy Spirit, we just are so grateful for your presence. Jesus, thank you for your great love that you died on the cross for us, that you endured tribulation and persecution all while thinking of us. And God, we want to follow in your example. We ask that you would just give us faith. God, would you give us zeal? Would you give us boldness to say the things that you've set in our hearts to say without having any fear of what man might think? I pray that we would have only the fear of God in our hearts. And Holy Spirit, if anyone here that struggles with fear of man and fear of death, God, would you release us from that? In Jesus' name.